It's okay. We're ready to go. I gave the dog her roofie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. Um, the uh, the little puppy had uh, woman surgery and has been gnawing at her uh, incision. So uh, the vet said, well, we can put her on some kind of medication to keep her from doing that. So what's that? Uh, it's it's basically a dog roofie. Fantastic. I'll take a year's worth. <laughs> yeah, is is she walking around like the little lamp from Pixar? Well, she <laughs> she's uh she stumbles every once in a while, then she goes into her box and lies down and falls asleep. <laughs> it's uh it's for her own good. We're not abusing our animal here. We would never do anything like that. However, we do desperately need to uh, make sure that she doesn't rip her guts open. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers or the animal control authorities. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is not our fault. <laughs> it's fine. Here we go. 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 Here the Edge from U2 dropped by the GNB studios. We accused him of spamming iTunes, and he had something interesting to say about people who don't like U2. In 2014, Mitch Markowitz of the hilarious House of Frightenstein told us why he still goes to comic book conventions and will play the top 25 songs of the last year, all in four minutes flat. So enjoy the big show while we sit around wondering what to do with all this free time on our hands. Uh, whatever the case, we'll be back with all new shows January 14th. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. So, did you end up getting your iPhone 6 or not? Uh, I'm waiting for it. Oh. I'm tracking it. it. It left Shanghai last week and will arrive uh, at my door with the signature required on Thursday. One moment. Siri, are you iPhone 6? Oh... I'm sorry, Michael. I'm afraid I can't answer that. <gasps> He's being coy. He? He. Yes, I changed the uh, the gender. You transgendered Siri? <laughs> yes, I transgendered Siri. Siri has the option to switch between male or female voice, and I thought I'd switch it up because everybody uses the female sexy voice. Yeah. I thought I'd use the male voice and just catch everybody off guard. All right, well, good for you. Okay. I'm comfortable with my sexuality. I'm okay with this. All right, fine, 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 fine. I got the 128 just like you did, although I didn't pay the $1,100. I didn't for get it. the 120. No, 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 no. I got the 64. You only got the 64? Well, I didn't. I, didn't, I don't need it. I, I, I honestly don't need it because, um, I, I mean, I've got a 64. 5s in front of me and it's uh i still got 24 gigabytes left all of my music is on it all of my videos are on it and all of my family photos as well and i still have about 40 gigs left on it that's a lot it is it is 128 seems to be a little bit of overkill also a little bit overkill the actual size of the thing i know you printed out the template so that you could get a sense of the size of it uh, and that's why you didn't go with the plus the plus is like an ipad mini mini what do, what do you have I did get the six, the regular six. The regular six, okay, But it, good. in unto itself, even at 4.7 inches, just feels just a little bit big in my little wee girly hands. Yeah, I was going to say you got the, the wee girly hands. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm glad I didn't get the six plus because I've seen some reviews now, people thinking, hmm, seemed like a really good idea at the time, but uh, they don't fit in my jeans. I wouldn't want to put this in my back pocket, and uh, it doesn't fit in a lot of other pockets that I have. Yeah. I get so many things. 
When it launched, of course, they also launched with uh, that new Songs of Innocence album by U2. You got a chance to sit down and talk to The Edge. I did. Uh, he gave me a call and I asked some tough questions. Including, is the new album spam? <laughs> well, I'm a journalist, don't you think? And, and he was actually quite gracious about how he answered the question. We're, we're not naive enough to think that everyone is going to like our work. Um, there are times when, when, when I think that people who don't like you two are just not trying hard enough. But, you know, in the end, when you've got 500, 600 million people getting your album, of course, it's, it's you know, it's not everyone's going to want it or like it. And we're fine with that. We're, we're, we're cool with, with people, you know, if they want to throw it in their spam junk mail, that's up to them. But what's exciting to us is the number of people that are, are getting to hear our music maybe for the first time. And, you know, all of our albums over the, over the last couple of weeks have re-entered the top 50 or 150 of, of the iTunes charts and so far 38 million people have listened to this album so I think it's working I think our songs are going to become more famous because of this way of distributing the album than if we'd gone for a conventional release and I think that's our job really as artists is to make our work known, understood and appreciated by the greatest number of people possible You mentioned as well that um, there originally was a relationship with Apple, as we knew, because they came up with the iPod that had all of the uh, discography on it. And then they crossed the street and went to BlackBerry. And now they're back with Apple. Yeah. And, and uh, the, I asked that question, too. Why did you have the falling out with Apple? Why did you go to BlackBerry? And how did you manage to come back to Apple? Well, you know, we've kept our, our friends um, close at Apple over the years. And that, that release, you know, we'd been talking to Apple at the time. And for various reasons, it, it didn't seem like the right moment for us to do something with them. I think we, we couldn't really quite sort of figure out how we were going to do something that was right for us and also made them happy and Steve happy. Steve was, was really the person that we were talking to in those days. Um, so in the end, it didn't happen. We, all, we, we did something with BlackBerry, which was, which was fun. But, you know, looking back, I can, I can say that, uh, you know, the, the times we've worked with Apple, we've been able to do things that have never been done before. And that's, that's certainly the case with this release. And, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's good. Maybe the, the, the fact that we couldn't come up with something at that moment meant that um, it kept, kept this opportunity fresh and, 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 you know, exciting. And so it's, it's, it's all good. You asked him about a, a new album, maybe a new format. Yeah, there was some confusion. Bono was making some remarks about the next album, which will be called Songs of Experience, coming out in some sort of new format. And everybody's thinking, oh, HD audio, some sort of high-res audio. What does it mean? No, it's, it's more about the packaging of the record, apparently. Well, we're working on some new ideas, which we hope we, we might be able to, um, to kind of utilize for the release of Songs of Experience. And it's too early really to say, but I think it's, it's kind of a combination of both those things. And, you know, we as artists want to try and make music, um, you know, be a, a part of people's lives that, that 
that they enjoy in many different settings and in different ways and that it, it you know I remember what it, what it was like for me as a, a 16 17 year old to get a new album and to to really dive into it and 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 explore it and allow it to kind of become the soundtrack to my life for a period and I think music's lost some of that importance and I think that it's it's sort of up to the artist and and the record companies and and the technologists to try and get music to people find people where they are and 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 give them an experience that that does connect with them in a deep way and i think it's you know the the the, the way it's become a little bit more like a kind of utility like a bit like tap water you you want some you turn the tap and there it is it, you know it's an inevitable result of the way technology is has has given people this um such an easy access to the entire um library of, of, of rock and roll that's ever been made it's, it's diluted somewhat the the kind of occasion of of an album release and um we're hoping to to kind of claw back some of that so that it's 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 more important to people now than well in the future than it has been okay so when when can we expect this next year year after yeah i think well you know it's too early to say for sure but that would be our intention would be in fairly short order to try and get part two out but um we still got to finish it and i don't want to say anything about a release date again <laughs> until we really know what we have we we're, we're going to put it out when it's ready that's that's all i'd be prepared to say and when it comes down to it the edge was asked would you release this album the same way you release songs of innocence so far he's he's okay with everything I, i'm actually amazed at how well it all went i i we really didn't quite know what was going to happen and um you know we thought there might be massive technical problems but it you know apple are are amazing at what they do and it's all gone so smoothly i mean there's obviously been some negative press but mostly the stuff i've seen has been really positive in the album i think has has been getting a lot of positive reviews. Um, you know, we we did spend a lot of time making it. We we made sure the songs were fully realised. It was important to us that that this was an album that we could really um, completely get behind on every level. And um, so I, I think we're going to make a lot of new fans as a result of this record and the way it's been released. Frankly, I think I'd rather talk to the Edge than Bono himself. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I listened to some of the interviews that Bono did the same day that Edge was doing his, and a lot of Bono's answers to some of his, some of the questions were rather cookie cutter. Uh, the Edge seemed to be rather engaged with uh, what I was talking about, which was which was nice to hear. I think everybody else, or so many other people, managed to, uh, were just like, oh my God, I'm talking to Bono. And it's just like, yeah, it's Edge, come on, let's have a conversation. I'm not bugging you. No means of bug you. Okay, Edge, play the blues. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. 
You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. I didn't know Forest City was the nickname for London, Ontario. It is? Apparently it is. I thought it was the insurance city. <laughs> well, we, of course, are now broadcasting on CJBK in London, Ontario, and someone who works there went, are you kidding me? Well, I'm going down to the Comic-Con. I said, by all means, report for us. And so, sure enough, LT grabbed her uh, iPhone and hit the streets of the Forest City to find... Wait, 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 wait. Who? LT. D- d- when did we... He, she? She. I'm sorry. We now have a London bureau chief. Did I not tell you? We do? Yeah. No. How many people are on staff now? 13 now. You know, Christmas is coming up. They're going to expect bonuses. <laughs> what, We're doomed. What, 20% of their, their salary, perhaps? Of zero? <laughs> yeah, okay. On one end of the spectrum, there's the Wall Street investment bankers. On the other end of the spectrum, there's our people. So guess who she found? It's time for another Geeks and Beats live on location show. This is London Bureau Chief LT at the first ever Forest City Comic Con in London, Ontario. Mitch Markowitz from the hilarious House of Frankenstein. Fun, fun, fun. I love the Comic-Cons. I love all of these live shows because I get to meet fans. I get to people who've been watching our show. Actually, I'm, I'm meeting these days three generations. People who watched the original shows in 1971 when we first did it. Their kids who watched the reruns. And now their grandchildren who they're introducing the show through, uh, through DVDs. Perfect. Thank you. And um, so how did you become interested in geek culture and events like Comic-Con and your show even? Well, I, I think the, the crowds, the audiences sort of overlap. I find that a lot of the people who are interested in this kind of thing also watch Frankenstein and, and loved it and loved the humor. Um, and uh, and I love seeing them. I love the costumes and the energy that you see at these shows. Do you think shows like The Big Bang Theory and even your show have made being a geek kind of more popular? Like- oh, absolutely. More popular, acceptable, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, where you used to be sort of shunned upon to be the geek in the corner. Now you're the guy to follow. You're the you're the star of the class. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think Hollywood is doing a good job of portraying geeks right now? Well, they could do a better job, but no, they're doing a good job. I mean, and the show you just mentioned is now in one of the, the top ten shows on the air, drawing huge audiences, huge ratings. So more will come to follow. No, they're doing a good job, okay. yeah, especially since it's a niche market. Big niche, but a niche. Well, it's a big niche now because it's getting more famous and more popular. Yeah, and it feeds off each other. How well are women being portrayed in the industry? And do you think they're they're doing a good job getting more women involved? Should there be more women involved? What do you think? The answer is, I'll start with the last question. Absolutely, there should be more women involved. But I think things have changed dramatically in the past 20 years or so. I mean, it used to be that women were all portrayed as secretaries or waitresses, and that's just not the case at all anymore. I mean, the vice president of the United States is a woman, and then senior executives in lots of the shows are women. So it's, it's done a complete reversal, and there's more to come. I mean, for sure, we're going to see more and more of the big heavyweights being women. And uh, who is your favorite character? Comic books? 
Uh, Superman. Superman? Yeah. yeah. He was my idol, and that's where this super hippie character came from in Larry's as a Frankenstein, because it certainly didn't fit in with the rest of the show. I mean, it was all horror and Transylvania and things like that, and where does super hippie come from? Just, I mean, it was a sign of the times. It was the 70s, and the hippie part made sense, and we just threw it in, and then people seemed to like it. He was my life. I mean, I grew up watching him on the original Superman show on television, and I was devastated when he apparently committed suicide. George Reeves did. Uh, but he was a huge influence. And I'm influenced by television in general. I watch a lot of TV, and I'm influenced by it. And it's nice to see that the younger generation watched our show, and it influenced them. So it all, you know, it won. It's, it's, it's all one big vicious circle, but it's not so vicious. At the first ever Forest City Comic Con, LT Geeks and Beats London. Were you ever a fan of the hilarious House of Frightenstein? I think if you were a kid growing up in Canada in the 1970s and you didn't have cable TV, you had to be. I mean, Billy Van. I mean, uh, who was your favorite? You watched it, right? I watched it. Um, the Wolfman was one of my fan uh, favorites because, of course, he was the DJ. But yeah. Igor, I loved Igor and his psychedelic dance moves. In front of the green screen, and that weird green screen thing. Oh yeah, that was really cool. And you know, Billy Billy Van played how many different characters on that? Almost all of them. Oh, pretty much all of them. But you know, when he was, I am the Wolf Man. Oh, I mean, I, I love that sort of stuff. And they would play. Okay, if you don't know what we're talking about, there would be a segment of this show, this hilarious House of Fr- Frankenstein, which, by the way, was filmed mostly in Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, straight to videotape. Uh, really low budget stuff. It was uh, Canadian content that. Um, was aimed at kids under under what under fourteen and under maybe yep and it was the premise was it was a, this goofy vampire and his all his characters that live in the hilarious house of Frankenstein and there was the Wolfman would uh, do this this thing where he would play a hit song of the week and then he would step in front of a green screen and then sort of dance or, or mime or, or air guitar or something to that hit. Yeah. Now, Mitch Markowitz was part of that as on the writing team. He he went on to do some pretty major things. Uh, he wrote for Good Morning Vietnam. He did? He wrote the movie Crazy People. Television credits include uh, MASH, Too Close for Comfort. I'm telling you. And this guy's making the rounds um, on the, uh, the Comic-Con circuit, just talking to people about stuff and nonsense. I do remember that uh, Vincent Price was part of this. Vincent Price would always do the intro and the extra. That's right. Yeah. 1971 is when it started. They did 130 episodes. And one of the f- creators was a guy named Ross Perigo, who was a professor, professor of journalism at Concordia University. Oh, uh, well, anyway, Mitch Markowitz actually has a uh, Wikipedia. Oh, it's a very short entry. Yes. An American screenwriter, best known for Good Morning Vietnam, Crazy People, MASH. MASH? I just said that. I wasn't listening. <laughs> you were too busy looking stuff up. I, I was. I mean, because now you've... you've, you've rekindled some some childhood memories in my head. Well, you can buy the DVDs now. You can? There are DVDs. And the neat thing is is it's very much like the WKRP problem where they couldn't resyndicate it because they didn't have the permission to play the music that the Wolfman played as the DJ segment. Really? (laughs) 
Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats Swag Store. You're listening to Geeks and Beats on iTunes, Stitcher, and the Bell Media Radio Network. So when it comes to the holidays, there's nothing we can do to avoid it. The music is here, and the most performed holiday song from the last 100 years is not White Christmas. Uh... Yeah, this is rather interesting because it is a survey done by ASCAP, the American Association of... What did you call me? <laughs> no, your asshat, this is ASCAP. Um, they're they're the, one of the big... Just spit on my scotch. <laughs> this, is, this is one of the big collectives in the United States. They're the one that are in charge of music publishing and performing rights. And they've been around for, uh, for a century. And uh, around this time every year, they put out a bunch of lists regarding um, which of their members' songs have been played or performed the most. And this includes radio airplay, uh, television performances, uh, other people performing the show, uh, the other people covering the song, songs from the concert, all that sort of stuff. So they're able to track all this. And uh, because it's Christmas, they decide what they would do is they go back into their archives and they find out which Christmas song has been performed the most in their history. Now, keep in mind that this has nothing to do with uh, BMI, which is another uh, American-based music publisher, music collective, CSAC, another American uh, music collective, Uh, BPI, which is in the UK, Um, there's one in Germany, every every territory has their own. But ASCAP is the biggest, so we can actually take this and, and, and run with it a little bit. So according to them, the song that has been played the most, or performed the most, the Christmas song, since 1914, has been, and this really surprised me, is Santa Claus is Coming to Town. By John Frederick Coots. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. You better be good for goodness sake. Yeah, and Haven Gillespie, they uh, wrote this song back in 1934 when Eddie Cantor needed something to sing during the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade broadcast in New York. There was a Mm -hmm. broadcast and they needed something. And um, um, he... um, I'm sorry, is that Picard again? No, that's Courtney. Oh, Courtney Hall. Courtney, yes, Courtney Love just texted me. And uh, let's see what she says. I said, I'm in St. Bart's. And I asked her if she needed anything, and she says... Pack of smokes. No, she says, uh, need anything? Bring me back Moustique, which is another island. Uh, But have fun. Okay. John Frederick Coots composed over 700 songs and over a dozen Broadway shows, and uh, him, along with Gillespie, as you pointed, in 1934, wrote the lyrics to the biggest hit for both of them. There is a great book right uh, right now called Tara Boomdier by Simon Napier Bell. 
that talks about the history of music publishing and you would think by that description it's really really dull but it's not and he goes he goes into this whole business about how the era when there were songwriters and then there were performers and in the you know this is basically the way it, it existed in, in the music industry up until the 1960s so you would have guys like Fred Coots and David Gillespie who were professional songwriters and their I what they would do is they would crank out song after song after song on spec for professional singers so like i said that they were they were uh commissioned to create this song for the 1934 macy's thanksgiving day parade and uh that version along with several subsequent versions that came in the next few years were complete chart stiffs but then in 1957 perry como recorded it it became a huge hit and after that it morphed into this giant christmas classic that's been covered by you know half the planet and you know bruce springsteen's santa claus is coming to town that's probably the most most famous version of it these days um the second most popular song for christmas is called the christmas song chestnuts roasting on an open fire that was written by mel torme and robert wells in 1944 and once Nat King Cole and his orchestra got a hold of it in 1946, it caught fire and then it became this, this giant hit. It's only when we get to number three that we find White Christmas, written by a Jewish man, Irving Berlin, by the swimming pool at the Beverly Hills Hotel in 15 minutes uh, in 1941, gave it to Bing Crosby, and it, it is the biggest selling Christmas song of all time, and maybe one of the biggest selling singles of all time, because the estimates are that it sold like 100 million copies, but it may be the biggest seller, but it is not the most performed song. What a stark contrast to this year's top 25 songs from the Billboard Hot 100. This time last year, I played for you DJ Earworm's 2013 list of the top 25 songs. Have you seen this year's mashup of every single song in a single track? His, what is it, United Hits of America? I, I, I have it, yeah. DJ, I, I met him a couple of years ago at a uh, at a, an event in, uh, for Ad Age in, in New York. Nice guy, really nice guy. And uh, he's very proud of this thing that he does every year. It's really impressive. Oh yeah, he's... He's a mashup king. Do what you wanna do.
I'm sort of using this mashup that he does every year as some sort of indication as to how old I'm getting. <laughs> Time to pack it in. My Logan's run is done. Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. Got a question about music, love, that suspicious rash? Ask Alan anything. Call 323-319-NERD. Hey guys, this is Jesse from Winnipeg uh, for my Ask Alan Anything question. Alan, how come most of the songs I hear on a local radio station, uh, which I don't want to name, it's not all the songs, but my ears tell me something's wrong. Sounds like a poorly encoded MP3. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Because most of them are. <laughs> Here's what happens. Uh, radio stations don't play vinyl anymore. They don't play compact discs anymore. They play something off a, a hard drive playback system, which is really like a glorified iTunes. Usually, they're, what, what radio stations try to do is encode um, all their music as WAV files. But that takes a long time. And over years, you get kind of sloppy. So you may have some WAV files, you may have some MP2 files, and you may have some MP3 files of various uh, bit rates. And the problem that we have is, and I'm going to guess that you listen to a rock station. The problem is that a lot of rock and pop these days is already super, super compressed at the WAV file stage. So when you put it into, when you convert it to an MP3, it gets even more compressed. And then radio stations, especially FM radio stations, uh, have a compressor as well. Oh, for God's sake. You know, you know your, your phone does have a do not disturb feature. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting it there. It's off. This relationship will never go anywhere. No, no, nowhere. And radio stations have uh, a signal compressor themselves. So here's the situation. You have an analog performance in a studio, which is then slightly compressed into a digital format. That is then sent for mastering, where additional compression is applied. Then that WAV file, it's still in a WAV file format, is distributed, whether that be on CDs or through digital distribution nodes. And then it could be encoded or it could be um, loaded directly into the digital playback system, or it may go through an MP3 encoding before that. For example, if a radio station needs something for their library, they can't get it, they buy it off iTunes, so they get it in the AAC format instead of FLAC or anything like that. Which they have to compress again. Which they have to compress again into an MP3 file, which they load into their hard drive system, which they then broadcast over the air using yet even more compression. So there were two, three, four, maybe five levels of compression that go on this song. So, yeah, basically what you're listening to in, in some cases, and it's unavoidable because of all the time constraints and all the issues involved with hard drive playback systems with radio, you are listening to badly compressed MP3s. Back in the mid 90s, a buddy of mine decided he was going to convert his CD library into MP3 and he used an MP3 encoder that had a bug in it. Oh no. Every 60 seconds, there was a click 
and he didn't notice it until about three weeks later when he finally started listening to the MP3s. How many songs, how many CDs had he, had he, had he encoded by that time? About 2,000. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Uh, what do you encode your songs at? Uh, I tend to encode it at 196 or 192. I don't know which. Per channel? I have no idea. I just set the primary settings. And by and large, I don't have to do it myself anymore because most of my music is purchased now. Yeah. I don't have anything that, that's ripped off CD. That, that, that was done a long time ago. For example, this show is recorded in the 192 um, uh, kilohertz, is it? Uh, no, it's uh, kilobits per second. Kilobits per second. And we upload it in an MP3 format, which makes the files fairly large. For example, this show is about 100 megabytes on your iPhone. I apologize. Mm. That's still not bad for it. That's, that's, that's standard for a lot of podcasts, somewhere between 100 and 125 megabytes. It's not bad. You going to get this new Rolling Stones picture book for Christmas? Well, this is rather interesting. There's three levels of Rolling Stone picture books. There's the $150 one, there's a $5,000 one, and then there's the limited edition art print one that runs for $10,000. I think there's only 75 of those. And they're obviously designed to be collector's items, and they're the kind of people who buy rare books and, and display them on you know, very expensive shelving. Um, I'm not a big Rolling Stone fan. I know a couple of the photographers that were involved, like Ethan Russell. Um, I did some work with Ethan, Ethan Russell a little while ago. And I mean, it's, I'm sure it's beautiful, but I'm not that much of a Rolling Stone fan to spend $150 on a coffee table book. Let and alone I, five grand. Well, they come with uh, lithographs and art prints and a bunch of other things. I mean, the books themselves, they're published by a, a company called Tashin, mm -hmm. which uh, specialize in this, these really high-end you know, pieces of art is what they really are. And, but I'm, I'm, I'm just not that kind of a collector. I wouldn't care for a $10,000 Rolling Stone book. According to the article that you've uh, linked to here, Billboard.com, the Stones recognized the power of the camera right from the start with the UK cover of their first album, 1964's England's Newest Hitmakers. Yeah, everybody will say that about the Rolling Stones. Everybody will say about that about any band. But the Rolling Stones were around at a time, and the Beatles were around at a time, when you had a lot of young mag maverick photographers uh, who were given all kinds of access to this band in an era when serious journalist photographers had no interest in taking any of these photographs. So a guy like Ethan Russell, who could come over from the U.S. with a decent Canon or a decent Nikon and just ask if he could photograph the Rolling Stones or the Beatles, and they would say yes, uh, gave these people a tremendous leg up. And they took some absolutely fantastic pictures, not because they were necessarily famous at the time, but because they were the they were peers, they were they were artists who, uh, for whatever reason, appealed to the sensibilities of, of of the subjects, and they were they were given access. It just that sort of thing just doesn't happen anymore. Foo Fighters, meantime,'s got this new album, and you're asking, is this really about the album? What do you mean? Well, here's what I think. Uh, unless you're Taylor Swift, nobody is going to sell albums in platinum numbers anymore. Here's my thought: the Foo Fighters management company. Very smart people. Silva Artist Management of Los Angeles. They made, they sat down and said, look, we're not going to sell an awful lot. We're not going to make all our money on selling albums anymore. So what we're going to do is we're going to make an album and that will be the means to a variety of ends. One of the um, ends will be a TV series that we can produce with David Letterman's Worldwide Pants Company and sell to HBO around the world and make money from that. 
The other thing that the album will do is give us a reason to go on tour once again. And the Foo Fighters make a tremendous amount of money from playing live and selling merchandise. So the album itself, not all that interesting, not all that important in the grand scheme of things. It's certainly certainly when you compare it to where, you, where things were, say, 1995 or 1996, uh, it is this excuse to be able to do all these other things. Now, if you listen to the album on its own, it's an okay album, but it sounds more like a companion soundtrack to the eight-part HBO series. When you watch the HBO series and you hear all the songs and see how all the songs go together and how they all came together, well, that makes uh, all kinds of sense and the songs sound better, but detached from the series, they're just a bunch of songs, and there's only you know two, maybe three songs that'll be good for singles on that. The rest are kind of adrift without them being attached to the visuals of the HBO series. So the album itself, not as important as it used to be, but it is something that says, hey, the Foo Fighters are back in business for this cycle, and part of this cycle uh, features uh, a big TV show. Um and all kinds of uh, live shows. And uh, if you buy the album, well, great. If you don't, well, it doesn't matter because we're still going to be in your face. I think the Foo Fighters have reached the same stage of their career that U2 has. When you go to a U2 show, you don't necessarily want to hear anything from the new album. All you want to hear are the big hits from their giant repertoire. Foo Fighters are the same thing. You don't necessarily want to hear too much from the new album. You want to hear all the great songs from the last 20 years. And I think they know that. And I think they're making this transition into a band that uh, uses an album as uh, a means to an end. See, this is the problem, is Dave Grohl seems far too smart, seems far too much of a nice guy. Uh, and, and I love that. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of fodder associated with that. So the guy's got to use his big brain to come up with alternative ways to get attention outside of selling platinum album status uh, or records at a million at a time. You've listed this brief history of rock stars and air rage. He's never going to be on it. No. No, he's he's not. I noticed though, Courtney Love is on it. What three times, twice? <laughs> there was a period of time uh, where where Courtney was a bit um, unpredictable. These were air rage incidents that never really amounted to much, but did make the papers. Uh, the big ones, the big air rage ones, were um, Ian Brown of the Stone Roses, where he ended up uh, actually being sentenced to four months in prison for making threats against, allegedly, well, making threats against a cabin crew on a British Airways flight from London to Manchester. And Peter Buck from R.E.M., who kind of went a little crazy on a British Airways flight from Seattle to London, where he overturned a cart and spread yogurt all over the place and basically lost his mind after having a little bit of too, too much red wine with some Ambien. We learned recently that Dolores O'Riordan uh, was arrested this week over an alleged air, ra air rage incident. Yeah, she was flying in business class from JFK to Shannon in Ireland, and... Uh, uh, apparently something uh, went very, very wrong in the business class uh, cabin on, on descent and on taxiing. And then she was met by security when the plane finally reached the gate. She apparently headbutted the guy that was trying to take her into custody and spit at him. Uh, and But before that, she stomped on the foot of a air hostess so hard that she broke the woman's foot and she had to be taken to hospital. Uh, when she was taken into custody, she was held for 24 hours, apparently in a hospital. So we don't know what's going on. She's been released without charge, 
but we the the investigation is con- is continuing, so we don't really know where this is going to end up. Doesn't she live around the corner from you? Uh, she used to. With uh, she had a, a Don Burt, who's her husband, who is uh, about six six. He's huge. He used to be the road manager for Duran Duran, and uh, he's the manager and, and basically the uh, her manager. And uh, Don is a very large man. Um, so to see them side by side is rather you know kind of comical almost. I, I've, I've got a thing for, for women who are all wrong for me, and I thought Dolores O'Riordan was one of the good ones. Apparently, you can see a connection between how crazy someone is and how thin their eyebrows are. <laughs> That's okay. She can stomp on my foot anytime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.